As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen won a rain-hit Japanese Grand Prix to clinch the World Championship in confusing fashion on a day when the drivers were furious about a recovery vehicle on track. So did F1's latest controversy overshadow 2020's Coronation Day? And exactly what did go wrong at Suzuka? I'm Ed Shaw and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how's Japan? Because I'm not there for this weekend, I'm relying on you to give me a, a, a taste of what's actually one of my favourite races. Yeah, it's um, it's been brilliant, to be honest. I've, I've loved being back. Um, this is absolutely one of the, one of the great great races to, to be to uh, to be at um and one of the great places to come to I, this this time i came through tokyo sometimes i come from uh, a couple of times in the past i've come from osaka and it's just been great and I, i'm really pleased as well that the race returned with a with, with a proper crowd and because the japanese fans are are unique it's uh it's quite beautiful um in 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 a way the the, the the manner in which they embrace Formula One, the the the, the colours and the costumes and the I, I I had a conversation with Alex Alban about this on Thursday actually and um he said that they mob you here but they do it in such a quiet and polite way and I just said um it's almost like respectful enthusiasm is what I would describe most Japanese fans and it's been it's just been brilliant even on the little media shuttle as you drive into the circuit like they're waving at you as you drive in through the circuit gates as they line the roads they're just enthusiastic to see anyone related to formula 1 it is a um it is a breath of fresh air to be completely honest there's um, there are obviously some amazing fans around the world but you just don't quite get a welcome like you do at Suzuka so it's been, it's been really lovely to be back 
Yeah, it's just one of the things that makes that race so amazing. And I'm pleased to hear it's just as amazing as always. They always show in the TV footage a few fans, those dressed up like Kimi Räikkönen in his James Hunt tribute and all that kind of thing. But what it never captures is just how much of that sort of thing there is going on. It's absolutely brilliant. How about you, Mark Hughes? Are you enjoying it and do you manage to keep dry? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't stay dry, but that's, you, you sort of expect that coming here. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I always enjoy. You can't not enjoy it. And it's aside from the very special atmosphere of this part of the world, it's just one of the the great racetracks as well. And just um, you know, the natural habitat for a, a Formula One car. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's old school in that respect. And um, there's just it's very little uh, not to like about this place. Pretty much universal now that it's the favourite track, isn't it? It always used to be Suzuka and Spa, but I think some of the changes at Spa have just meant Suzuka has edged ahead, but both great circuits. Well, let's get into it, Scott. We will dive into Verstappen's win and the title victory shortly, but we've got to delve into the major talking point first. That was the flatbed truck that caused so much anger, particularly for Pierre Gasly, who passed it while catching up the safety car train on lap two after a pit stop for a new nose and fresh tyres. You spoke to him after the race, so... How furious was he, and was he right to be angry? Yeah, he'd um, he'd calmed down from obviously the um, the the TV images that we saw after it happened. Unsurprisingly, because the race was red flagged for what an hour, an hour and a half, maybe even longer. Um, while uh, while we waited for a break in the weather, which meant obviously the the actual initial incident took place hours ago by the time we spoke to Pierre. But while the sort of emotion was out of his voice in the sense that he was very much in control of what he was saying. And it was very measured and quite monotonous, actually. The strength of his words was was still there. And the, there, was all, there was almost like a quiet anger about the way he was talking. And it, it was very, very clear that he was still extremely upset by it. And I think, by and large, I think he, abs- he's not, he's, he doesn't even ha- just have a point. He's absolutely bang on. Just like all the other drivers that that chimed in supporting him, there is no excuse whatsoever, whatsoever for that for that truck being on track when there were cars on track. Um, I understand that it is supposedly normal procedure for that to happen under a safety car or a red flag for the recovery vehicles to head towards the scene of the accident to retrieve the the broken down or damaged car, because at that point the race is meant to be neutralised. The cars are meant to be going at a sensible and controlled speed. There is not meant to be any danger at all. But this was clearly not a normal situation. The conditions were awful. The It was possible to aquaplane, as Carlos Sainz had literally just demonstrated. And the visibility was terrible as well, as Pierre Gasly had just demonstrated by, by ploughing into an advertising hoarding that Sainz's crash had brought onto the track. And to add to that, the recovery vehicle was on, it, on its way to that exact scene where that had just been proven could take place. So I just don't understand it at all why there there was no uh, no common sense applied to that situation. It was almost just like, well, this is just what we do when there is a safety car. We'll just send the recovery vehicle over. It might as well head there now. And especially at that point of the circuit as well, because you're almost going around... It's you know the visibility is particularly bad there just because of the nature of the track the way it falls away and then goes around to the right and the by the time the truck was on the track it was effectively on or just off of the racing line so completely justified I think Pierre Gasly's anger the the only thing that wasn't justified was the speed at, at which he drove after 
passing that scene because it's very clear from the steward's investigation that he was speeding excessively. He was in excess of 200 kilometres an hour, which I think by that point it was obviously under red flag. And I think that was probably unnecessary. But I think this has just been... That just proved to be a distraction. The, the stewards obviously wanted to make a point with that, but it kind of detracted from the elephant in the room, which was that there shouldn't have been a truck in the first place that basically wound Gasly up. So, yeah, I I, th- I think he's completely within his rights to be as angry as he was. Yeah, and of course, Pierre Gasly got a 20-second penalty in lieu of a drive-through that dropped him from 17th to 18th, but that was specifically for speeding under the red flag after uh, the truck. And Mark, as always, we've got questions from the Race Members Club to be answered. The first one is related to this. If you'd like to join the Race Members Club, head to race.com and don't forget the hyphen and click on Join the Race. The question's from Oscar Robledo, who says, should Gasly be censored for driving too quickly during the safety car period? And does the enforcement to yellow flags, particularly double-waved yellows, need strengthening and drivers made to really slow down? So can you tackle that, but focused on the case study of, of what Gasly did today? There's two parts to it. There's the thing that Gasly um, was uh, um, penalised for, which was uh, Scott has just been talking about his speed um, after um, passing the incident um, in, during the red flag. Um, but the the super dangerous part was the fact that he was um, recovering to catch the back of the safety car queue uh, on wet tyres, which were, you know, right for the conditions. Um, and he was doing what any any driver would be doing in, the, in that situation. He'd just been in the pits. There was a safety car. He needed to get to the back of the queue. Um, when they threw the red light, it was he was maybe a second, a second and a half away from the scene. You know, you can't just instantly bring the car down to a, a crawl. Um, so, the yes, the, the FIA was right in um, criticising his actions subsequent to that, but it's not acknowledged. It's the, 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 their own failings in, in the handling of that situation. Um, and, you know, so I think that we shouldn't really be looking to deflect um, where the where the fault lies in in this situation, um, but in terms of um, should should drivers be forced to, to to you know should they be come down harder on that? No, I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is to, to have more clarity um, and to have more predictability in um, how situations are handled. And that's what drivers are pretty much universally asking for. And we should also note that in this particular case. Gasly didn't exceed the safety car speed delta that was on his dash, so he was doing everything he should have done. I had a bit of a look at the timing loops. I think he was about 39 seconds off the safety car train when he came out of the pits. By the time he got to about turn 13, it was just over 30 seconds, so he closed up eight, nine seconds, which catching a safety car train, that's not ridiculous, is it? So I think it shows he was doing uh, what was right. So that word you used there, though, deflection, I think was important because it felt a little bit like initially... The FIA were quite keen for everyone to focus on what Gasly was doing. And we should say, Scott, they did later, about three hours, three hours 20 after the race, they announced that there is a review launched into this particular incident. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's part of the the normal process that they would go through in this when, when there is a flashpoint. But 
it, it almost felt a little bit like they had to be strong-armed into it because that statement referenced the um, the feedback from the from the drivers. Uh, feedback was an interesting way of saying stinging criticism, but I suppose that the FIA does have to sort of um, uh, look for the silver linings and sort of pretty up uh, the, the the situation a little bit for itself. It def- I agree with you that it did felt that it did feel like Gasly was being um, targeted a little bit, it almost. Uh, it was borderline scapegoating him at, at one point, but but then I think it just became a look at this for now because they don't make a they don't make a big song and dance normally about reviewing these kind of things. I just think with the way it was such a big and prominent and controversial issue, they had no choice but to acknowledge it with a formal statement towards the end of the day. I, I just think it could have all been done a bit quicker. Um, coming back to what Mark was saying about clarity, I think linked to clarity is transparency and there was no reason for the FAA not to just hold their hands up early and say, okay, look, we've probably acted a bit hastily here. Um, this is the normal process, but we can already see that this was a mistake because of how bad the conditions were. We will look into this and ensure that something like this can't happen again. I don't really understand why that needed to take three or four hours after the race itself for that to, 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 to come out. But I am, uh, I'm not a communications expert. So, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something very obvious there. And the main thing is, is it's an important reminder of something that really does need to be attended to. Obviously, several drivers, including Pierre Gasly, Lando Norris, cited the example of Gilles Bianchi, who lost his life as a result of the crash here in, in 2014. I mean, Mark, we were both there for that day at Suzuka, and you can't help but think of that sort of thing at this track, primarily because of Bianchi, but even the Martin Brundle incident in 1994 when he hit a marshal and wasn't far off hitting a recovery vehicle himself. So it's just something that they always need to be vigilant on. And this point about, yeah, there will be recovery vehicles on the track sometimes, but what's very clear is in these sort of circumstances, it's got to be avoided, which is why all the drivers were unanimous. But it was unanimous, really, that this must not happen. Yeah, I think when you... um when you hear the FI say it, it's it's not normal routine to in these such situations to uh, p- control the field under a safety car and put a recovery truck out. Well, the answer to that it shouldn't be. It should simply <laughs> that's not what should happen. Um, if just because you've been doing something wrong for years doesn't mean you should continue doing something wrong. Um, I think as soon as there there is a necessity to have a recovery vehicle on the track, there can't be any cars on the track. They should never be on the track at the same time. As simple as. Well, it comes down to an expansion of the decisions they made after the Bianchi crash, actually. They realised that basically recovery vehicles and marshals are the two things that get within the track perimeter, by which I mean within the walls that you can hit that are not designed to be hit by a car. So it makes sense to take action to prevent that from happening, just purely from what the consequences of such interactions are, let alone the, the wider implications. So very positive the FIA is reviewing this. And the one thing I will say is we hear the FIA talk about transparency quite a bit and how transparent they are. So I'd just like them to review it and just explain the processes and what will change after once they've been through everything. So it'll take them a little bit of time to do that. Well, Scott, that's the proper controversy out of the way. But let's look at the confusion. There were two reasons Max Verstappen clinched the title after the checkered flag. One was that penalty for Charles Leclerc that dropped into third behind Sergio Perez. We'll look at that in a moment. The other was the rules. So why were full points awarded rather than the expected reduced amount given the distance covered and what most people thought was going to happen with, I think it was 19 points for a win? Yeah, um, exactly that. Uh, Basically, even Red Bull team boss Christian Horner called it a mistake effectively in the um the way the rules have have been written so 
I would imagine everybody listening to this will remember the ghosts of uh, the 2021 Belgian Grand Prix um, and the farcical situation there where we had a race result declared and and, um, half points awarded for a race that didn't happen. Uh, What was that? I think it was technically three laps under the safety car slash red flag and then there there were no racing laps and it, it was a joke. The race classification was based on one lap at Spa last year. That's the official result, one lap it counted back to. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was a, it was one of the lowest days Formula One has had in in years. And in the aftermath of that part of the um, the review into ensuring it couldn't happen again was to work out a new system of uh, allocating points based on the percentage of the race that had been completed. And this was done to ensure that an appropriate number of laps were necessary for points to be awarded. And this is done in stages. Um, There are basically four sets of points that can be awarded, depending on whether you've um, managed less than 25% of the race, uh, 25 but less than 50%, 50 but less than 75%, and then 75 to full distance gives you four points. And... So basically, everyone thought that as um, once the the race resumed, because we'd had the uh, we'd had the suspension, and it was very clear that we weren't going to get full distance in. Everyone assumed that we would therefore be racing to one of those percentage points. But effectively, what hadn't been taken into consideration, and I'll let you um, bring up the interesting little thing you've noticed in the previous regs, is that with the way that the regs were written for, for for this year what they haven't done is basically explained what happens if the exact situation that played out in the Japanese Grand Prix happens because the rules only set out the points that should be allocated uh, if a certain percentage of the race is completed after uh, when the race is suspended but but can't be resumed and the can't be resumed is key there because this race could be resumed. So basically what that means is that that provision in the regulations is relevant. It doesn't come into force because the the this system that got painstakingly mapped out last year to ensure that that laps had to be completed to award points was just irrelevant. It never kicked in, which which is which is just crazy because what that means is that because the race resumed and was ended by the the race clock, and that's the reason we didn't get uh, a certain percentage in. But because it resumed and finished, any number of laps could have been done today, and we could have and we'd have awarded four points, which is which is just crazy. And you, I don't really know what word to give it. I think some people have taken issue with calling it a loophole because the you know the regs are written as they are now; they are clear in black and white. And what was done with one hundred percent points awarded was correct effectively because there was no reason not to based on how the rules are written but the fact that basically every team boss said that they were expecting it to be a percentage number of points and that they hadn't seen the potential in the regs for this to happen shows that even the people that were in charge of approving these this wording got confused by it I'm annoyed at myself that I haven't having read that section, clocked that before, but I think it's a bit of confirmation bias. You know, you go to that reg thinking it maps out this, so you're not looking at, you are you know what I mean? You're not scrutinising that part of it because you're looking at something else. I think that's what uh, that's why I overlooked it, and I assume that's why everybody else overlooked it as well. 
Yeah, it's an interesting little case because I think the actual problem with it that you can, if you have a long delay during a race and then a, a shortened race by the three-hour clock, creates a, a full points for a race that shouldn't get full points has existed for quite a long time, certainly ever since that full race span race clock exists. Again, we're down to the two-hour race maximum within a three-hour window thing because all of the six half-points races that have happened before and some of those predate the race clock, they were all ones that were stopped and could not be restarted. So it was like, that's just the way this is. But a race where you have a long stoppage during it, having started it and then finishes at the end is the situation that hadn't been been considered. But, but how untidy is it that the fact this was a reg that was specifically scrutinised and looked at, but still had that big error in it? Because as Scott said, it was black and white. It did say that, but it just shouldn't have done. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the rule as written was correctly applied, but the um, written rule wasn't the intended rule. It wasn't. Um, it, it, it had a different meaning to what was intended, um, and so the race control could only apply what was written. And yeah, obviously that's a, that's a massive oversight. Um, yeah, it, it was a, a race that was that was completed, as you say. So. <laughs> um, it just makes it, it makes everyone look silly. It's very hard to explain to a you know casual or even a, a semi you know you know it's a semi committed fan. It's very hard to explain how um, a high profile global sport can get itself into a, a knot over something as simple as this. It's it's fairly ridiculous. Yeah, just the confusion was the big problem. That's something that just needed to be avoided. Okay, there was always going to be a lag because of that Leclerc penalty, but yeah, just a, a stupid situation. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, as promised, let's come back to that five-second penalty that cost Leclerc second place to Perez. Mark, he went off at the chicane on the last lap, did just hold Perez off, gave him a little bit of a squeeze on the run to the line. Was that punishment justified? Yeah, it was. I mean, you, if you if you go off if you go off the track, it's it, it's it's one thing um, overtaking getting getting a place by going off the track. That's obviously um, you know not 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 valid. But this is just as invalid as is is to not losing a place because you 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 break so late that you've gone off the track um, when you when you should really you know really have have lost the place. So. Yeah, I think that was I was fair enough. He was a little bit unfortunate in, in, in that he probably hadn't realised this was actually the last lap. In which case, you know, it was um, he was probably concentrating on you know not not wanting to be passed down the straight. Where whereas if he'd realised it was the last lap, um, it, it would all have been you would have approached it in a slightly different way, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I don't think he could really have any um, any truck with the, the fact that he was penalised. He, he did. He did gain an advantage or he didn't suffer a disadvantage um, and uh, he should have done so yeah five seconds fair enough yeah and I think even a clerk later admitted that it was perfectly reasonable any dissent on that Scott or were you happy with it as well um, no dissent on my side I mean Mattia Bonotto said after the race that he was an, a bit annoyed I think at the the speed in which the decision was made um, 
because they didn't wait to hear from either of the drivers. They just declared it straight away. Whereas obviously last week, Ferrari were waiting for ages to see whether or not Checo got the, the penalty that Ferrari felt that he should get for, for not staying within 10 car lengths of the safety car in, in Singapore. And they're apples and oranges and you can't, you can't really compare them. So I don't think really Bonotto has um, much, uh, much of a leg to stand on there. But I think, and you know, maybe maybe he was fully aware of this uh, when he said it, and he was just you know trying to make a point. But I think the thing to to be aware of is that obviously when that penalty was rapidly applied, or when and when especially when that incident happened, we were all watching in the belief that it had absolutely no material impact because it was going to be a, a set number of points awarded. But as it turned out, that penalty is the only reason Verstappen won the championship. Uh, won it here rather because obviously that penalty sw- switching those positions meant he gained the enough points on both drivers to to have an unassailable lead and I think that the personally anyway I think the officials are aware of that I think they know that that because full points are going to be awarded they know that that decision has an impact on whether he's crown champion or not, and I but and I believe that that is why they expedited that decision. If they're within their rights to; they don't have to listen to the drivers um, afterwards. If they consider it slam dunk, they can just make the decision there and then. But I would be amazed if the reason they did that so quickly wasn't because they knew that it would be pretty rubbish for them to leave it the result as it was, dwell on it for an hour or two. Then later in the evening, give Leclerc the penalty, promote Perez, and then obviously after the fact, declare Verstappen champion. I think they wanted to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, I think that probably did play a little bit into it. But it's also a question of what do you need to know? You know, the facts of that were fairly obvious. What could Leclerc have said that would have, or offered as evidence that would have changed the interpretation of of what was going on there? Again, it's like Nicholas Latifi was complaining about the penalty he got for hitting Joe at Singapore, saying, well, I wanted to tell the stewards that I couldn't see him, it wasn't deliberate. It's like, well, it wasn't, you weren't done because it was deliberate. You were done because it wasn't correct. So, yeah, ultimately, some things take longer than others. I think as a general rule, if you can get the right outcome quickly, that's to be encouraged. So I'm not going to criticise them for that too much. Well, let's get on to Verstappen winning the World Championship, Scott. We'll start with you. It's a second title, very different to the first one, very much one we've seen coming for a few months now. Any superlatives left for him? Uh, he's. I, I think. Um, I think he's been tested in new ways this year, and I think he's passed pretty much all of them with flying colours. That that's the that's the thing that's impressed me this season. I don't necessarily think Verstappen's driving any better. I, he had a different challenge this year. It wasn't as intense. It wasn't as drawn out, and it wasn't as bitter a fight as it was in 2021 up against the might of Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. So it was a very different championship battle. But as I say, tested in different ways. He had to uh, he had to come back from a massive deficit after the first three races. He had to dig down and help Red Bull um, make sure that they reacted properly with their early reliability problems. And we know that Verstappen sets an incredibly high standard and holds Red Bull to an incredibly high standard. So he would have played a part in that, absolutely. But then there was also the fact that even once his season got going, the Ferrari was the faster car. So... Verstappen's had to win an awful lot of races this year, not starting from pole position. His pole to wins ratio is fantastic. It's the um, it's I think it's even great. Is it greater than the inverse of of Leclerc's pole uh, pole to win ratio? So 
Um, Verstappen's done a lot of winning without the fastest car this year. He's won wet races, dry races, wet, dry races. He's won from pole. He's won from seventh, I think, 10th, 14th. He he has been fantastic this year in, in various conditions. And while you can absolutely say that, you know, it, it was easier in, in some ways because Ferrari kept imploding and finding new ways to, to, to mess it up and it wasn't as fierce a fight as it was in 2021. No, it wasn't. But it was a different fight. It was still one he had to win. It was still one he had to be brilliant in executing in order to dominate the championship the way he did. And I know every now and again I compare Verstappen's stuff he's done this season to things we saw in the Hamilton Mercedes era. But the reason I do that is because I think that's what a lot of people have been only been perhaps only been watching F1 for the last few years. That's what they have as their reference. And anyone who's been listening who was listening to us in 2020, for example, will know how high a bar we felt that Hamilton set that season. And just because he didn't have any immediate opposition outside his own team on a race-by-race basis didn't make that any less impressive because he was absolutely phenomenal. And Verstappen, it was similar in a different way this year. The the race-by-race competition has been a lot tougher because Ferrari has often been up there and very occasionally Mercedes has as well. But actually over the course of the championship season... Actually, since probably Azerbaijan, he hasn't been threatened at all. So it, it's been different, but he's just been relentless, and he's just he's never he's never really looked phased, to be honest. So I, I think I think he's been superb this season, and the fact that he's a double world champion is one of those where kind of feels really weird to say it, but then at the same time, I consider what he's like as a driver, and it is just an absolutely natural fit because he is an. He, he is now part of a super, super elite club. And I think he has to already go down as as an all-time great. It's just where he's going to be in that list when his career finally comes to an end. Considering he only turned 25 a few weeks ago, it's frightening to consider what he might go on to achieve. There will be many, many more wins, I'm sure. But you've encapsulated what it is he does that's great. He wins all different types of races in all different circumstances. He wins marginal races from down the grid. He wins championships that are nip and tuck all the way. He's able to dominate and pummel the opposition when it's possible to. That's what the greats do. They, they're able to do that across a wide range of conditions. But Mark, let's just have a look at this race as a bit of a, a case study. This is probably the latest we've ever got into the how the race was one question. But let's apply that to be an appraisal of Verstappen's qualities that he showcased today. So how did he win today? He's, one of his amazing qualities is how he's on the limit immediately. And he just first, first lap of the weekend, he'll quite often be, you know, faster than anyone by a couple of seconds or more. You see it in... Um, you know, a wet, a wet session as well going, he, he just, he's immediately on the limit. He's got just uh, sort of a 360 degree sense of, of, of where the car is, where he is. And that's, he, he just, you know, that, that, that's just, it's not, I don't think that he feels he's pushing against the limits there. He just, he knows where the limits are and just gets straight up to them. And um, it, quite often you'll, you'll see, the others then gradually sort of claw their way back towards him. And he ended up taking pole by a, a scant margin because he's, you know, the, he got a little bit, it, it, his final Q3 run was a was a bit scrappy and he ended up relying on his first Q3 run, but it was still, it was still there. Um, but I think probably um, the, the best, the 
the the best bit about his weekend was the the first start um, when the the car bogged down a little bit. Uh, Leclerc got the run on him, was down the inside and clearly ahead, and it didn't phase Max at all. He just stayed on the outside, which you can do there. It's it's a big, wide, fast entry, and in the rain, that's there's there's more grip. It's it's a longer way around, but it's a grippier way around. And he just he just sat it out around the outside and had enough extra momentum, you know. With that, with it, with a title sitting there waiting to be taken, he wasn't. Um, he didn't play it uh, calculating. He just did what he always does and just raced. And yeah, Leclerc gave him given the necessary room, just a you know tiny bit of room that needed to avoid the collision. And that was it. He was through. And then it, he set such a hot pace. Leclerc was able to stay with him, but. You know, Max knows very well what his car's strengths and weaknesses are uh, relative to the Ferrari, and he would know that if Leclerc was trying to keep up with the pace he was setting, he was going to do his tyres in because that's what the Ferrari does, and it did. And um, Leclerc kept up with him for about three laps and then just destroyed its front tyres, and after that was rapidly going backwards and then being caught by Perez. And that was it. And then Max just just didn't ease up at all. Just won by twenty seconds in a twenty twenty five seconds, something like that, in as many laps, and just a totally dominant. But never, never looked um, under any any threat at all. He was uh, at one point pondering, "Are we going to, you know, because I had the gap, they could have done the the free pit stop. Are we going to do the free pit stop and you know go for the fastest lap point?" And uh, the, the team said, "No, we're not. We're not going to." risk that at the moment and he was quite calm about it everything was you could hear from his um the, the way he was talking to his, his his engineer everything was very calm and under control and a situation that you look at from the outside looks incredibly leery and dramatic um he's just in his natural environment and you know he's at home and uh yeah he's i mean he's a <sighs> He's one of the great drivers, and he's in by far the fastest car and probably the best team. So you know the outcome is not really a surprise. The, the the amusing thing about the way he was in, so you know, such control and and how, how calm he was in those closing stages. You know, the the good example being what Mark said there about not chasing that fastest lap point is is almost like they kind of they were resigned to the fact that it wasn't going to be won the championship wasn't going to be won. So they were just like, okay, well, we'll just go to Austin. And if we go to Austin and we've missed out on winning it here by a point, that's fine. We'll get it down in Austin. They they were very calm about it. And I think Max has actually been quite good about this the last couple of races. He's obviously now, this was his second chance to win it, but he didn't, he's never looked like chasing it, has he? It's not looked like someone who's just like, you know, feels like he's got a point to prove or something with the way he's going to do it. He's just sort of gone, yeah, it'll happen. Like he know he's known since the French Grand Prix, since Leclerc put it in the barrier, and Max said that after the race in his Champions press conference, that was the moment that he thought I'm going to win the title this year. That's back in July. So since then, he has just been like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to, and if I keep doing my thing, it will happen. He's so brilliantly process driven. He doesn't get carried away chasing the goal. He just goes, oh, I'll just do this here. And if I do this here constantly, week in, week out, then the goal takes care of itself. And it was just funny that that manifested, manifested itself today in this really chilled demeanour to the point where he admitted he found it funny afterwards that he had no idea he was world champion because he was he, he got out of the car 
and thought he hadn't done enough because it wouldn't be four points. Then someone suggested he might be, but he wasn't sure. And then the FAA media delegate, Tom Wood, told him, no, four points, you're world champion. So then Max sort of celebrated. But then someone else told him, oh, actually, no, I don't think you are. I think you are one point short. So he wasn't sure. And then he joked and said, but then someone told me I definitely was. So I had enough points and I was world champion again. And he just laughed it off. He was so relaxed about it that he was able to just take that. I mean, that that would have infuriated me. I'd have felt like my moment had been taken from me because of this pointless confusion. And Max just, just like like he does a lot of the time, just took it all in his stride. Yeah, that's the mark of a champion very, very much in control. Well, it's time for a quick update on the progress of Grid Rival. Now, Grid Rival is the fantasy motorsport game and the race has its own league. I'm hoping for a second victory in a row over you, Scott, as I managed 1,013 points, courtesy of Magnussen, Hamilton, Perez, Russell, Mercedes, and double points talent driver Esteban Ocon. So is that enough? What, 1,013? Yeah. So a four-figure haul? How did that's amazing? I think Ocon was a big part of that, especially as I had a slightly strange lineup because I was locked out of the Ferrari drivers and Verstappen. Yeah, no, no, no. 1013 is brilliant, but it's not as good as 1021. Uh, you and your maths. Yes, I finally did it. I finally got my first four figure points haul of the season. I've been rubbish for so long, and I've often found it quite good when I've got into the mid 900s. That's how mediocre my season has been. But I, I think I've like shot up like 200-odd places in our league because of this uh, this massive haul this week. So yeah, I have Sebastian Vettel to thank his um, inspired strategic decision. Um, when he was um, facing the wrong way in the track um, on the first start, I was thinking, well, that's a good use of my talent driver. But as it turns out, I had a, had a great one with um, Verstappen, Norris, Ocon, Vettel, who's my talent driver, Magnussen and Mercedes so a couple of solid point scorers there in in Magnussen and Mercedes they didn't do anything particularly special but the others oh they've they've they really delivered for me so I'm uh, I'm delighted to have uh, not not just I uh, across the board that's a that's a that's a strong set for me I beat you I got my personal best for the season and I broke the four figure marks so I'm delighted yeah, that's enough from you, Scott. Let's look at the top scorers of the week because that's far more interesting than hearing you crowing. Top scorer was Debo29 with 1,134 points, just clear of Friedrich Van Vel. And in the overall league standings, it's still Jackie789, 58103 up front, but Raniel Ricardo. Who, who I outscored this week. Who, who I outscored this week, I checked. You see, I've told you to stop talking about your score, so we, we've, we've moved on. We're talking about an exciting title battle. 52-point gain for Raniel Dicciardo this week, so it's game on in that fight. Grid Rival, of course, is still open for sign-ups. We'll be tracking progress over the year, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in. Links in the episode description for this podcast. Well, Scott, best of the rest behind the top three was Esteban Ocon. That's the team's best result of the season. Fernando Alonso backed him up with seventh place after that stop for a second set of intermediates. Thomas Knights asks, given the pace Fernando Alonso had, how good a weekend did Ocon put together to qualify P5 and finish P4? Yeah, he did a great job. He um, he pieced it together in qualifying and and, and Fernando just didn't do quite a, a good enough job. But when, when it counted, he, when he looked like he was the one who, who had had the edge up until that point. Um, so Ocon did a great job there and actually felt that there was a little bit more in it um, as well, I don't think he—he he didn't think obviously he could have um, qualified any higher, but I think he was very, very happy with 
Um, I think you just sort of felt, oh, maybe I could have gone just like a tiny bit faster. Um, so that was great, and obviously it was the foundation of um, it was the foundation of of the race that followed. But that performance in the Grand Prix was fantastic. Obviously, the um, the Alpine had a clear straight line speed advantage over over the Mercedes when Hamilton was hounding him relentlessly in that Grand Prix. I lost count of the number of times that they crossed the line, like three and a half, four tenths apart, but it still wasn't enough. Obviously, no DRS because of the the conditions but that Mercedes is so draggy and was and was running a bit more wing so um, just Lewis never had any chance of getting past but Esteban did a fantastic job because the flip side of it being um, I don't know whether it was necessarily just because of wing level or what but I he, he still had to make sure that through the twisty bits and he didn't he didn't leave any margin for error and we saw George Russell in the other Mercedes admittedly up against a couple of slower cars so it was a bit easier to do this we saw George get you know quite clever and improvise and use the Mercedes strengths through the corners to nick a couple of places in in really good um, parts of the circuit and you know Esteban made one or two tiny errors that let Lewis sort of show a nose or try a cutback and that kind of thing but held held firm brilliantly under immense pressure from from someone of Lewis's caliber and afterwards, um, they were they were in great spirits. Lewis um, came up to go, went went over to Esteban in the in the mix zone afterwards, right in front of us, and um, gave him a big uh, pat on the back and just said, "Oh, next time I'll get you." That was great fun. And, and you know, Lewis reveled in the battle. Ocon was dead proud of himself. It was a uh, for me. It was the highlight of the Grand Prix for me. I, it got very interesting late on with the Perez Leclerc battle, but I I was glued to that Hamilton Ocon fight. I could have watched that for another fifteen twenty laps. Yeah, that was a really high-class drive from Ocon. It's very, very easy to get things wrong in those conditions. As you say, made a few little mistakes, but one proper mistake and you lose that position. Mark, let's talk about Alonso. He was a little bit frustrated after the race because that late change of tyres in the first stint, I think, was that the problem he had. He didn't come in and think until lap eight, whereas the first stoppers were on lap five and most had come in on, on lap seven. So do you think Alonso had a point? Could it have been much better for him? Yeah, I think um, I think that was right. He may even have been able to come in a, a lap before everyone else. You know, the, on the, the the first lap um, after the safety car released them, uh, and you know what's what Vettel did and the TV did, and it it pulled them up a lot. But um, yeah, his weekend got away from him really in qualifying. He was all through the practices, a bit like Max, super fast immediately. Ocon nowhere near him, and Ocon eventually through the weekend gradually getting closer and closer. That's the pattern we see um, regularly this year. And then when it came to it in the crucial Q3 lap, uh, just a small error, gone up the hill, and that was it. So he's, he's two places behind, and that just sort of defined his weekend. So really, yeah, I can I can understand his frustration, but it, it'd be with himself as well, not just a, the, the strategy call. Um, yeah, you got you had that great dice with Seb, and um, they they crossed the line almost, almost uh, as one. It was I think a hundredth or a uh, 0.016, I think from the the gap between them. Just yeah, just you know, fantastic dice. And had it, had the race gone on another lap, I'm sure he would have got it. He would have got that place. Um, yeah. I'm, the, the cars. The good news is that the car is really good. Uh, it's it's improved a lot with that upgrade that went on in Singapore, and um, yeah, they they're really sort of targeting racing Mercedes uh, on an equal footing for the rest of the year, 
which I think that might be ambitious, but they, you know they they out qualified them here and um, finished ahead of them. So yeah, um, I think Alonso can is probably is probably gone home kicking himself because he, he probably feels he could have been involved in a fight for the podium had he put everything together um, in the way that uh, it looked possible to do. Yeah, it's 0.011, the gap, Vettel to Alonso in the end. And actually, we should note George Russell was right there with him in seventh place. He lost a little bit of ground early on because of that double stack pit stop Mercedes did, but came through, picked up some uh, some reasonable points, which was positive for him. But a big swing in Alpine's favour in that battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship, given McLaren only managed the tenth place for Lando Norris. Let's talk, Mark, about Sebastian Vettel, six on his final Suzuka appearance. It's quite something considering he's facing backwards after turn one. But you could actually argue that was the making of his race in a funny kind of way. You could because, I mean, he, he was solidly at the back when he, he managed to get the thing out of the out of the mud, which even that looked to be quite an achievement. It looked like he was going to burn the clutch out before um, it was going to find enough traction to actually get back onto the tarmac, but he did it. And, um, yeah, the... The the, the 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 very the at the very first opportunity as soon as the safety car um came in he came in um and uh, Latifi did did the same and that that was that turned out to be absolutely the right time to to get onto the inters to get off to get off the wets and onto the inters because the track was clearly already ready for for inters by the time they got racing but they'd been obliged to put the wets on because it was a safety car start and. Yeah, he made that um, work. He he'd been um, he was pretty impressive in qualifying, I thought, and he, obviously it was a quite an emotional um, thing for him because um, he went around and saluted the fans afterwards. You know, you you went out on a lap that was never going to get him to the line in time to begin the laps, but but it did give him um, the opportunity to to thank the fans, and then yeah, he just uh, he got involved in a little bit of. Argy Bargy at the start with Alonso, and um, he, I think Alonso was unsighted, and they just, they just there wasn't really room to fit the two cars in and uh, into into turn one, and that's uh, where Seb ended up um, on, on the grass. But uh, yeah, I'm sure he, I'm sure he'll be uh, he'll go home with a, a nice warm feeling after that uh, final appearance at Suzuka. And he was putting about the idea that he'd be very happy to make a one-off comeback at Suzuka next year if anybody needs him for that. I'm not sure I have many takers for that, but you never know. Stranger things have happened. But yeah, I'd agree that first turn thing with Alonso and Vettel was just one of those things, really. There was an element of risk for Vettel going around the outside. I don't think Alonso did anything untoward. Just, just these things happen. Scott, let's talk about Nicholas Latifi. For the first time this season, only the third time ever, he finished in the points. Ninth place. Lucky or a genuine high point for him? Um, a little bit of both. Um, he he made the he made the the decision that 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 Vettel did as well as Mark explained and made made it work. Um, his pace was good when he went on to the intermediates and I think actually for a while there was um there was a point where he was being overtaken by other cars and I think it was Lando Norris who was next up behind him but but Norris couldn't match his pace um, in the McLaren and and you know so. Yeah, lucky in the sense that um, obviously the the gained a, gained a few positions for a few different reasons. Obviously, um, Albon had the problem on the the opening lap. Signs crashed out. Um, Gasly had had a uh, um, a pit lane start. Blah blah blah. But then obviously all of that was basically negated by the gamble to to go onto the inter. So from the, I just 
didn't didn't put a foot wrong. You know, made made the call, made a made a smart call with 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 the team. Trust it was either his decision or the team's decision, and he trusted it and 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 made it work. And I'm pleased for him because he he was actually quite. Uh, this was a relatively really good weekend for him by 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 his standards. I think it was only a couple of attempts off Albon in qualifying, and considering he doesn't know the track, and he'd had a confidence bruising Friday and Saturday with his um, silly little error on Friday where he turned down the wrong part of the circuit and ended up on an escape road, um, and by his own admission he was really struggling in FP3. You know, his deficit in Q1 actually was... That must have been one of his closest deficits of the season, if not the closest gap of the season to Albon. And he was actually quite pleased with that. So I think he actually gelled with this circuit quite nicely. And maybe that translated into the performance we saw on Sunday. So I don't think he's as bad a driver as he's looked at times this year. So I'm pleased that he's ended that that anomaly where he was the only full-time driver without a point. It also means he has moved ahead of Nick De Vries in the championship by virtue of countback, I think, because Latifi actually has a result to count back to, whereas De Vries doesn't. So he's ahead of the stand-in. So that's a good that's a good thing. Um, it's a couple more points for Williams. And I think it means it's the first season since 2018 that every full-time driver has scored a point. So yeah, just good work all round. Yeah, and I think for Latifi, he's a... a- popular chap he's got a good approach you know he's not a stunning Grand Prix driver he's probably only got four more races left in his F1 career so nice for him to have a uh, points finish at Suzuka as something of a collector's item for his his memories of his F1 career I suspect it might be wrong he might be back for many more seasons but it seems very very unlikely and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn's varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, as usual, we'll finish off by blasting through some questions from the race members. Club will start off with a batch about the wet weather. Mark, we'll start with Yanis van der Waal. Why didn't we just start on the full wets after the red flag? It feels like the FIA is too cautious every time they red flag it. The drivers can drive slower, and that is also a skill. And we will see performance differences. What else do we have the full wets for? Well, Yanis, you've hit on the problem in that last sentence. The full wets are the problem. 
I think the wet tie is so ineffective that risk control just feels there would be multiple red flags if they did that. Um, if we had an adequate full wet tyre that was good for more than just following the safety car, you could entertain ideas like starting a full wet race from a grid start. But um, with what we've got, you, I'm pretty sure you just get carnage and you know, one red flag followed by another one, triggering another one. So you know, it's just it's not feasible with what we have um, at our disposal. Well, Scott, Jay Gannon asked a connected question of should we get rid of the wet weather tyre? It feels like that in the past two years, if there is heavy rain, it should just be checkered flagged. Well, I think the wet tyre does serve a purpose in that it is a, it's a good little bit of uh, water dispensing behind the safety car and on reconnaissance laps. And I think that is basically the the extent of its purpose. It was there was there was a there was a point at which it was vaguely useful in the Grand Prix, but I think the fact that the back markers switched to intermediates and immediately started lapping several seconds faster than anybody else. Like was the, was, was the giveaway. So uh, this version of the wet, it, it, you could scrap it and um, it would make very little difference. I think the, uh, the inter has such a big operating window that um, the, the wet is pretty much surplus to requirements in all, but the most extreme circumstances. Mark, next up, question from Mark Stipe, who says, in an interview on Sky with Mario Isola, he mentioned there's nothing they can do for a tyre that can help visibility. Is there a special rain upgrade that teams can do for wet races that can help combat spray? Really, it's just part of what an open-wheel, single-seater racing car is. And when you add in ground effect, underbodies designed to throw the air and therefore the spray up high, uh, the, the problem is compounded. It's just inherent in the concept of the car uh, that it will throw up a lot of spray spray and um you know i think the, the when you go to a, a circuit with such high speeds um it, it it does really just um make visibility a bigger problem even than the, the the surface we used to see it also at um the old hockenheim where the speeds were very high and where it often rained it, it, just the sheer volume of water but the, the created by the speeds um could you do something? I mean, you, you're talking about a some bodywork canopy at the back or something like that, but it, you know, it, it's it's a sort of far fetched idea, and it would completely it would it would probably create more more problems than it than it solves. So no, I think um, it's just something that uh, that is part and parcel of the sport. Scott, another question from Oscar Robledo, who says, given some of the great wet races we've had in the past, Portugal 85, Britain 88, Japan 94, Silverstone 2008 spring immediately to mind, that probably wouldn't be run today. Does Formula One need a fundamental rethink of racing in the wet? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it just comes down to the the, the points that that Mark has talked about so far, one being the just the inferiority of the, the wet tyre product and... You know, Max Verstappen said after the race that this isn't meant to be criticism in that, you know, criticism for the sake of it. It's meant because he and the other drivers, they want to help. You know, is there a way that they can assist with Pirelli making a better wet tyre? You know, can can they can they work out a way to do more efficient wet tyre testing and, and, and everybody throw their weight behind that to make the wet tyre better? Um if you if you carry on with 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 the product we've got and we have this area regulation where as mark was saying it, it exaggerates the problem then 
then yeah, we, you are just going to have ultimately a, a car and tyre that can't race in, in, in the wet. And I know it's frustrating. I know it, it definitely does feel like modern F1 cars and these F1 cars are way more vulnerable to racing in the wet than they have been in the past. But yeah, it's because they are. And it's also because I think areas of circuit technology haven't improved enough. I'd be interested to see what gains could be made if circuit drainage and different types of surface that perhaps don't have as much standing water on them could potentially be invested in but that's probably quite a long-term project for a lot of circuits but that would be an interesting area of research as well because it isn't just the cars Sebastian Vettel was talking about the fact that it's the circuits as well and he said that we've known that for a while that these some surfaces and he suggested that Suzuka is one of them are just prone to developing pools of water on them so is there potentially something we could do there I don't know but it's an interesting idea. Mark, another question from Oscar Robledo, who says, if the differentiation between full wet and the inter is so big, should there be a regulation that allows the use of the wet tyre to be mandated until the race director lifts it? This will remove the competitiveness argument and enforce the safety first mantra I've been hearing all morning from drivers and team principals. You could, um, but it removes an element of competition, doesn't it? And it seems to be a sort of, uh, I don't know, a, a, low, a low way of solving a a, a, a problem rather than um, coming up with a, a you know a better way of doing it, a better a better tire, um, and and not taking out a whole dimension of competition. I think um, I think that's the way forward rather than um, trying to standardise it more and you know making it um, sort of exact the exact same strategy for everyone. Um, I, I wouldn't be in favour of that. Next up, Scott, Chris Parrott on a different topic said we had a race-long battle between Ockel and Hamilton thanks in part, I feel, to there being no DRS. Is this a reminder that maybe lots of overtaking doesn't necessarily mean better racing? Um, oh, it's difficult to draw too to firm a conclusion because it was kind of a, a very, very specific set of circumstances, wasn't it? Obviously, the conditions played a massive part because it uh, it did restrict the... Um, it restricted the possibilities that Hamilton had to, to to overtake. It's obviously not as easy to to send one down the inside at the chicane, for example. It's more difficult to to get a cutback or something because you're just struggling for grip all the time. There's a, the, there is the inherent differences between the two cars. I think if they're equal enough, then even with DRS, I think that Alpine and Mercedes fight would be would be quite interesting. Um, mainly because I think the Alpine in the dry conditions would be coming off that final chicane a bit better. So I don't think Lewis would necessarily be three temps behind him coming off the corner, but I, I could be wrong. Um, and then, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's all, like I said, the, the differences between the two cars, are going to vary circuit to circuit, not necessarily that they're going to have that, those wing choices and quite such a, a speed offset. So tricky. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to draw too firm a conclusion from it. I think it just showed that probably more than anything that actually in the wet you can still have good racing like that because I was a bit worried when the race started that the visibility would be so bad and it'd be so difficult to follow through the twisty bits that we wouldn't actually get cars running close enough to do anything but actually that was fun. But I do agree with his underlying point which is that you don't need to have a lot of DRS drive-bys for good racing because those aren't overtakes and passes. That's just a bit of nonsense stat padding to be honest 
Yeah, I like a bit of a tense battle like we saw between Ocon and Hamilton. Mark, next question is from Chris Parrott. says, is it just me or did the race end a lap early? Um, I can see why you think that, but uh, no, it didn't. The, the two-hour limit is the, the one that Chris is thinking of, which is when it's um, the zero countdown plus one lap. But when it's a three-hour limit, which is the window in which a two-hour race has to take part or a, a race going to the full distance in which it, in which it can um, happen, that, that three-hour window, when that's that, the, the hard wall that you're up against at the end, which in this case it was, um, you don't get the extra lap because the very point is that it has to finish with you know in them that that time it can't go over that time so it's it's the first lap at which the um the the, the leader goes over the uh the, the start finish line at which when the countdown is already at zero so it was actually correct and we'll finish off with a couple of questions about the driver market with some news this weekend. Scott Urban Strenken said, my question is, with grid seats filling up for 2023, do you think there's still a chance to see Daniel Ricciardo on the grid next year? No, no, there isn't. And uh, Daniel has um, accepted that and he's admitted as such he he's not going to be on the grid next year. It's all eyes on, on 2024. I think that in itself is a bit optimistic, to be honest. I just can't see what options are going to be available for 24 that aren't for 23. And I can't see why necessarily he'd go for them in 24 if he's not willing to go for them in 23, unless, you know, his personal circumstances change, maybe a bit of time off makes him realise he's desperate to be in F1 at any cost. But yeah, just difficult to see it. But he won't be on the grid next year. There's um, there's two vacancies, one at Haas, one at Williams. The Haas one is a straight fight between Mick Schumacher and Nico Hulkenberg, and the Williams one's probably going to go to Logan Sargent, but I have heard Antonio Giovinazzi and, Sch- and Schumacher linked to that as as potential alternatives. So, yeah, let's see who ends up there, but it won't be Daniel. And Mark, with Pierre Gasly being confirmed as an Alpine driver, which, of course, meant that Nick de Vries signs for Alfa Tauri. Jamie Willis says, with two French drivers now confirmed for a French mark that arrived in F1 from sports car racing, I have a slight sense of Ligier deja vu. But can Alpine ever be as competitive as Ligier was in its heyday? Ah, you're thinking back to 79 and 80 when you had Lafitte and Depay and then Lafitte and Peroni and they had absolutely rocket ship of a car. It was fantastic. And uh, yeah, um can Alpine ever be as it's a very different environment now? You, you know, you're looking at um, huge competitive cycles because teams are so big and well resourced in comparison, and the regulations are so tightly defined. Whereas back then, it was the the um, resources that were limited, and the regulations unlimited. It's the other way around now, um, not unlimited because because we've got a cost cap. But it, <laughs> compared to those days, uh, absolutely. So. Um, it would be, uh, and it would never say never, but um, it's not going to be like it was with Ligier, who had been just sort of semi-competitive and then all of a sudden just turned up with a dominant car. I, I, I don't think you're going to see that sort of, um, you know, switch-like uh, change in in the competitive landscape. Uh, I think you you you've got to be looking at uh, teams that have uh, that, that, that have already built up a. A, a, a massive resource and uh, you know are still enjoying the fruits of that despite the, the cost cap so you, you, you're looking at the top the existing top three teams and Alpine's now you know pushing very hard as prop, properly established I would say is, is the fourth quickest car but um, and, and is nudging 
Mercedes, as we touched on before, but to 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 go from there to 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 what um, Jamie's referencing back in seventy nine eighty, um, uh, I think we could be waiting a long time. Well, they've set a 100-race plan that the clock started running down on at the start of this year to emerge as a regular podium finisher and front-runner, so that's their time scale. Well, thanks very much, Scott and Mark, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen and loads more to read there, and make sure you download our new app. Just search for The Race Media on your app store of choice. Remember to check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, feel free to give us a review on your podcast supplier of choice. There's now a two-week gap before the United States Grand Prix, but stay with us on The Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the world. Of Formula One. The Athletic.